0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. Great job, great song, great thought. It is an interesting thing that the Son of God Himself, who lived a perfect life, felt the need to pray. Isn't it interesting that you and I, as sinful creatures, uh, sometimes don't? What a privilege it is to pray, amen? Go ahead and get in your Bible, if you would, please, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one near you. It's got a hard Black cover should be in a little rack and a chair in front of you. We'll be on page 778, Luke chapter 24, for many months now on Sunday mornings. We have been talking about things that Jesus exclusively said to his disciples. This is actually our the 30th thought that I had planned in the series. I have one more, uh, Lord willing anyway, to leave with you uh, after today, uh, before we begin our next Sunday morning series that I've entitled, Great Truths Written with Simple Words. But uh, if the Lord tarries, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. On occasion, Jesus spoke exclusively to unsaved people. Sometimes they listened to find fault. Other times they listened because they were looking to learn. They wanted to check Him out. Most of the time when we read what Jesus said, He was speaking to a crowd. Uh, That was a mixture of His disciples and those who were not His disciples, but on occasion, Jesus spoke exclusively to His disciples, people who believed Him to be the Messiah and the Son of God and who wanted to learn of Him. The word disciple really just means learner. And as a disciple of Jesus, uh, I want to know what Jesus had to say to me. And I think most of you feel the same way if you are His disciple, because Jesus would under similar circumstances, because He is a changeless Savior, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, because He is a changeless Savior, He would say the same things to us today that He said back then. Last Sunday morning, we talked about Jesus telling His disciples He wouldn't put more on them than they could bear. They were at their load limit on that last night of hearing difficult things. And so he promised that he would not tell them anymore that night, but rather would finish telling them the truth they needed to hear through the Spirit uh, after his resurrection. And in so doing, he authorized what we call the New Testament. And we rejoiced together last Sunday morning that we have a Savior who's not afraid to load us with the truth, that we need to hear, but also a Savior who watches us to make sure He doesn't overload us with things we are not yet ready uh, to hear. And we, we reminded one another that our world needs to hear about Christ and grace, but that the gospel is not a baseball bat that we go and smite the people around us with. And we should, if we are disciples of Jesus, be looking for the right time to speak the truth's. Because speaking the truth isn't really about us, it's really about helping the people who listen to us, amen? This morning, we are going to fast forward three days from the scene of our most recent eight Sunday morning messages, which were the upper room and the walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane in particular, where Jesus was speaking to His disciples, we are going to fast forward three days and go to the night that the Lord was crucified and rose again from the dead. It is impossible for me to articulate the kind of valley that the disciples went in when they watched Him suffer so badly and die after they had emotionally, physically, and in every way, invested everything in Him being the Messiah and the Son of God. And As the third day after His crucifixion wore on, reports from women who believed trickled in that Jesus was alive. Unfortunately, the bulk of the disciples and all the men, they didn't believe them. They told the men that They had seen angels and had spoken to angels. They had told them that they had seen Jesus and spoken to them, but they didn't believe. Peter and John had ran and went into the empty tomb and they saw Christ's burial garments there, but they didn't see Him or angels. And as that third day was drawing to a close, two of the prominent disciples were walking from Jerusalem to a small town called Emmaus that was about seven and a half miles from Jerusalem. These disciples were, of course, even though it was three days after the event, they were dejected, disappointed, and depressed. And many of you know the story of how Christ Himself joined them as they walked, though God did not allow them to recognize Him at the time. As they reached their destination... They invited him in for dinner, and when he prayed, they immediately recognized him. Nobody could pray like Jesus. They immediately then, of course, hurried back to Jerusalem to tell the apostles and other disciples what they had seen and heard. You know, there are a lot of people who never read the Bible, but would claim they believe it to be the Word of God. There are some who read the Bible and believe it, but understand little or nothing of its greatest message. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and that He is the only Savior of the world. Let me ask you this morning, do you read the Bible? For some this morning, this was the first time you had picked it up all week. Have you been able to see for yourself, it's key message and key doctrines. Did you know God must give someone understanding if they're going to understand the Bible? It's a book from God, not a book from man. Did you know Jesus said several significant things to His disciples on that third day when He appeared in their Sunday evening assembly? You would stand tonight in honor God's Word, what did Jesus have to say exclusively to His disciples? Tell of our thought this morning is, I want you to see me in the Scriptures. I want you to see me in the Scriptures. Luke chapter 24, we begin reading in verse 33, Luke 24, 33, And they, that's the two disciples from the road to Emmaus, rose up the same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and hath appeared to Simon. They told what things were done in the way, and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And as they thus spake, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said unto them, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. And when he had thus spoken, he shewed unto them his hands and his feet. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have you any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of an honeycomb. And he took it and did eat before them. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. Thank you. You might be seated. We're not told how long it took those two disciples to make the seven and a half mile return trip to Jerusalem. I'm sure they went as fast as they could. I mean, even if they were in some kind of shape and were able to somewhat run, it could have easily taken them almost an hour, and even walking quickly, an hour and a half or so. I mean, imagine what would have been going through their minds on that long journey as they went back to Jerusalem. All they really knew was that Jesus was alive and that He had completely changed them from despair and depression to great joy and great hope about their future because He was alive. Now we're not told who all was with the apostles, but this upcoming exchange was between Jesus and not just the apostles, other disciples who were with them assembled. In verse 33, it says in the end of the verse, it says, "...and they found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them." Now, of course, they began their conversation by telling everyone that Christ was alive, followed by the whole story of when they had talked to Him in verse 35, where it says they told what things were done in the way and how He was known of them in breaking of bread. Uh, And then, He didn't need to use the door. Uh, In His resurrection body, He just materialized unto them in verse 36. And as they thus spake, Jesus Himself stood in the midst of them and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. You see that night in His resurrection body, his resurrection body was flesh and bones, but no blood. In verse 39, it says, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself, handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. We know he, of course, shed all of his blood, and that the last drops came out when the Roman spear pierced his side, which blood, the Bible says, and water came out. Now today, the Bible says the life of our flesh is in the blood, and that was revealed back in Leviticus, way back in about 1450 B.C. The medical world didn't catch up to that until a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, It seems like the life of the resurrection body is in the spirit, unlike ours. Now Jesus, in His resurrection body, still had the wounds from the spikes in His hands and feet to prove it was Him in verse 40, when he had thus spoken, he chewed them, his hands and his feet. By the way, if you ever hear someone talking about the scars in the hands of Jesus, understand that is not from the New Testament. Uh, though all of the other physical damage that was done to him and his suffering seems to have disappeared and been gone by that time because if you remember he was beaten beyond recognition as being Jesus of Nazareth those wounds in his feet and in his hands they were still fresh and they are still fresh today he then ate broiled fish and honeycomb in his resurrection body while he was with them beginning in verse 41 while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, have ye uh, here any meat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. Uh, What he was doing was making absolutely certain they knew it was him, and he was giving them and us some kind of insight into what our own resurrection bodies will someday be capable of doing. Now, I don't know what you think. For me personally, I'd rather have fried fish to broiled, And I'd rather have french fries and ketchup than honeycomb. But I think the point is simply this. uh, All of us pretty much enjoy eating. And that in the resurrection body, uh, we're going to still eat. Amen? And after making sure they knew... It was the same body that He had when He walked among them and that uh, He died in. He begins to teach them. Now a lot of people, they don't ever pause to consider the incredibly high view of the Bible Jesus had and how Jesus used the Bible. The average Christian and the average spiritual leader, they handle the Bible like other spiritual leaders handled it, whereas really what we need to do is begin to handle the Bible like Jesus handled the Bible. Listen, every word Jesus of Nazareth spoke were the words of God. And yet, Jesus Himself, though He could have always used His own authority and used His own words, we frequently find Him quoting the Bible, speaking about reading the Bible, talking about the importance of the Bible being filled, the Scriptures mattered a great deal to Jesus. In fact, if people in general paused to consider how Jesus handled the Bible, they would begin handling their Bible much differently than they do now. He reminds them, That the things He told them before and the things that were written in the Old Testament were a big deal. Notice in verse 44, He said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Uh, By the way, that's all three sections of the Old Testament. The Jews and a lot of people who study the Old Testament, they break it down into those three sections. The law, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, the prophets which included the five books written by the four major prophets and the twelve books written by the prophets we call the minor prophets. And here, it's just simply called the Psalms, the poetical books that are in the center. And Jesus says, hey, listen, all those sections of the Old Testament, they speak about me. He warned them exactly what was going to happen, but they didn't listen. Keep your hand there. Just go back to Luke chapter 9. When we talk about Him telling them about things He had said to them and things that were written in the Old Testament about Him. Luke chapter 9, notice what Jesus told His disciples. It says, Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. By the way, you can't get any clearer than that. You mean to say, Brother Wally, that Jesus very specifically and clearly told His disciples that He would suffer, that He would die, that He would rise again the third day? He did many times. In fact, Matthew records at least six separate times. You said, Brother Wally, how could they have somebody tell them something as clear as that, and them miss it all? Wasn't what they wanted to hear. By the way, that's the way people listen to me. That's the way they listen to every preacher. That's the way people listen to anybody telling them what the Word of God says. If it's not what they want to hear, they somehow don't hear it. But it wasn't just that Jesus clearly told them about his suffering. The Old Testament also had clearly spoken about his suffering. Go back in your Bible to Isaiah 53. Of course, it was written in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning him, but probably the most famous section of the Old Testament that clearly speaks to us about what the Messiah would do and about how he would suffer was Isaiah 53. By the way, every godly Jew was familiar with this. Every one of the Pharisees, every one of the scribes, anyone who was serious about their faith in Jehovah at the time uh, had read this. Let's read how clear God was 700 years before Bethlehem's manger. And Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. By the way, before we go on, understand that when you saw Jesus of Nazareth, no one stood back and said, wow, there's a handsome man, and I'm going to follow him because he's handsome. He looked like a regular guy. Verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised. We esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. With His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Can you hear how clear that is? Wounded. Bruised. His soul an offering for our sins. He was striped with a Roman whip. He made His grave with the wicked, the two thieves, and with the rich in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. His suffering, His death, very clear in the Old Testament. Jesus had taught His disciples that. And if you go back to Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus is going to continue because Jesus next... uh, John next tells us what Jesus did at that time for His disciples in light of all the Old Testament speaking of Him in verse 45. Then opened He their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. By the way, I have that highlighted in my Bible. That's a big statement. You see, (laughs) the cross was God's plan, and that is clear. And the key to understanding the Scriptures for anyone who chooses to read them is Jesus opening up our understanding. He must give us eyes to see. He must give us ears to hear. He must give us a heart to understand. And by the way, thank God, He's willing to do that, not just for the apostles, but for all the disciples. because of what the Old Testament had predicted for hundreds of years, Notice it behooved Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. In verse forty-six, he said and he said unto them, "Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day." Uh, behooved means duty, means a necessity, it means a responsibility, something that is incumbent upon you. And as the author of the Old Testament, and as the author of the plan of salvation. Our Creator crafted this plan before the foundation of the world and it was Christ's duty, it was His necessity to suffer and die and rise again from the dead to fulfill the Scriptures. That was always the plan. By the way, if you're someone who thinks that the cross was somehow plan B or that it took God uh, by surprise that the Jews rejected Jesus offering them the kingdom of heaven. You underestimate the omniscience of God and misunderstand all the promises that that would happen exactly as foretold. By the way, we live in a day and age when New Age philosophy is becoming increasingly prominent. And what those who are involved in that sort of gobbledygook would say is something like this. That the spirit, Christ's Spirit came upon Jesus of Nazareth. It was upon Him during His ministry, but it left Him when He went to the cross. Notice how that contradicts what Jesus said. Thus it behooved Christ to suffer. Christ Himself suffered. Was Jesus of Nazareth suffering? Absolutely. He was the Christ. There is no such thing that is the Christ Spirit that is separate from Jesus of Nazareth. And so in light of fulfilled Scripture and the fulfilled words of Jesus, we're given a command in verse 47. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And this is one of five times where Jesus commissioned His church after His resurrection. And it's kind of an interesting contrast to some people who say today, you don't need to talk about repentance when you talk to somebody about Christ. Uh, Listen, go ahead and believe somebody who says that to you. I'll just take Jesus for His word when He said repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations. And this whole exchange was Jesus exclusively teaching and working with His disciples on the evening of His resurrection where they assembled. And there are a lot of things we can take away and apply uh, from what Jesus said and what He did that night with His disciples. And so what I'd like to do for just a few moments this morning is make some observations and applications of what Jesus said that night to His disciples. First please go in your Bible to first Peter chapter one. First Peter chapter one. Say so brother Wally is all you do here preach and teach the Bible? Yep. Yep, if you want to be entertained, if you want uh, a place where they dim the lights so you can't look at your Bible, and they have a spotlights up here and make this some entertainment platform, and they've got dry ice smoking up over there to whip up your senses, there's a lot of places you can go like that. But if you want to come someplace where we rely simply on the Word of God, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and the power and work of the Holy Spirit, this is the place. Some observations and applications. Number one, our Creator planned for the Son to suffer and die from the foundation of the world. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, For as much as ye you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That's in other words, you were not redeemed by the Jewish religion. Verse 19, how were they redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, here it is, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Notice, our omniscient creator has not been caught off guard by anything. Now, none of us understand why God in His omniscience and omnipotence allows the free will of man and devil to go to the extent He allows that to go. But understand, that was God's plan. You and I look around us and we see the turmoil in America, we see the complacency and lukewarmness in what is called Christianity in America, and we say, what's going on? And what I'm saying to you this morning is that nothing goes on that is not in some way according to the plan and will of God. And we read here that Christ was foreordained to shed His precious blood at Calvary from before the foundation of the world. Christ being rejected by the Jews and uh, having a cross was not a surprise to God. It was the plan. You see, the Jews misinterpreting what Jesus meant when He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven uh, is at hand. That didn't catch God off off guard. It it wasn't the Jews said, well, you you know what? Uh, We're not interested in a suffering servant. We want a conquering king. It's not that they had some meeting in heaven. and said, wow, that's what happened. I guess we'll just have Jesus die. Listen, He was foreordained before the foundation of the world to suffer and die and shed His blood. Jesus knew what was going. He was going to do before the foundation of the earth, though it was not manifested until Bethlehem. You see, when God covered Adam and Eve uh, after they sinned with a coat of skins and shed the first blood, God knew what He was picturing. When Abel offered the lamb on an altar of unmarred stones, God knew what it pictured, even though Abel likely just knew that he was supposed to offer a lamb to cover his sins. Abraham took Isaac to the top of Moriah and offered him. God provided a ram caught in a thicket that would one day picture the lamb of God, and Abraham didn't likely understand what was going on, but God did. Hear me this morning when I say, see the Father's love for mankind when He plans the plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. See the Father's love for mankind in offering the only begotten Son for the sins of mankind. See the Father's love for you as an individual when Christ died for your sins, when Christ became sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Listen, this morning, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been there, God loves you and Christ died for you. The only way for personal redemption is through the precious blood of Christ. And I ask you this morning, will you humbly turn to Him and believe? Your good deeds cannot wash away your sins. Only the precious blood of Christ can do that. Your religion, even if it's decades of what is called Baptist religion, cannot wash away your sins. Only the blood of Christ can do that. Will you repent? Will you turn to the Lord Jesus? Will you say, God, I am a sinner. I need mercy. I have no hope in myself. Lord Jesus, I believe in You. I want You in my life. Come into my heart. Forgive my sins. Be my Savior. And He will. When God made this plan before the foundation of the world, understand it is a huge deal if you choose to reject it. You may think you just come here and walk out of here and it's no big deal for you to go through another invitation without calling upon Christ. And I want to just tell you, it is no big deal if you reject Me. But it is a huge deal if you reject the Lord Jesus. There were no prophecies of the life or deeds of Confucius or Buddha Or Mohammed? None. They can't, and those who follow their teachings, they can't hold a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ. 4,000 years before He came, God said that the seed of the serpent would bruise the head of the seed of the woman. 700 years, and we read it before Jesus Christ ever that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, let them take Him and do to Him what He allowed them to do. 700 years before that happened, God had said He'd be bruised for our iniquities and wounded for our transgressions. And his stripes by His stripes we'd be healed. Long before it happened. There is no one like Him. There's none who speak like He speaks. No one ever lived a life like He lived. No one ever suffered it sacrificially and died for others like He died. There is none like Him. And none conquered death like He did. And so this morning, I plead with you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. Humble yourself. Call upon Him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But it isn't just that we learn our creator planned the suffering death and resurrection of Christ before the world was created. Going back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. Here's number 2. We need to treat the Bible like Jesus treated the Bible and seek understanding from God as we read it. We need to treat the Bible like Jesus treated the Bible and seek understanding from God as we read it. Notice in Matthew 21, verse 42, that He expected the prophecy of His rejection to be literally fulfilled, and He expected His disciples to have read about it. Verse 42 of Matthew 21. Jesus said unto them, did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in in our eyes. Not only is this a prophecy from Psalm 118, verse 22 about his rejection, a thousand years before he was rejected, Jesus expected them to have read it. He expected them to know the scriptures, and it was an error not to know them. Look in Matthew chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-nine. Just up a page says Jesus answered, said of them, ye do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God." And he goes on to quote Exodus three fifteen, taken literally, and he expected them to have known the scriptures. Turn up a few pages of Matthew 26. Listen, I could, I could spend 30 minutes on these kinds of examples. It's ironic that Christian people all over the place, they don't read their Bible. So I don't like the Bible. Well, they're probably not saved. Hey, hey listen, I don't think God expects all of His children to like the Bible to the same degree. I don't think God expects you to have the kind of passion that He gave me for the Bible or that He gives those here who have the spiritual gift of prophecy and teaching. I don't think God expects that. He does expect all of His children to have some passion for His Word. Matthew chapter 26. Notice that night in the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 52. Matthew 26, 52. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father? He shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Notice what he did. He expected to fulfill the Scriptures. And that what... They said, must be done. Verse 55, in the same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves? For to take me, I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples forsook Him and fled. Notice, <laughs> everything fulfilled the Scriptures. Listen, He had the strength and authority to resist the soldiers, but He yielded to the plan He and His Father created before the foundation of the world that was written in the Old Testament. You know, I think when we think about Jesus' view of the Scriptures, I think we most often underestimate how important they were and prominent they were in His life and ministry. Understand, Jesus would have never gone a week without reading them. He wouldn't have shown up at synagogue on uh, on the Sabbath without his Bible. In fact, we read uh, in Luke that it was his custom to stand up and read the scriptures in the synagogue. You, you never, the, the, though the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew uh, uh, and uh, Jesus used a translation of the New Testament in Greek and that was the primary language of the day. Listen, you never heard Jesus one time say anything like a better translation would be. You say, why? He would have understand the, understood the original languages so much better than everyone else. You're right. But He did not want to tear anything down that was in the hands of the people. It's an amazing thing to me. People out of one side of their mouth say, you must understand the original languages to understand the Bible. And then out of the other side of their mouth, the King James Bible is too hard to understand. Yeah, like it's tougher than Greek and Hebrew? Do Jesus never did anything that took people's eyes off of or made them think anything other than He was there to literally fulfill what they held in their hands when they held the Scriptures. See, a lot of people, they excuse their lack of interest in the Bible by saying something like, well, there's a lot of different interpretations. Well, that's true. But that doesn't mean there is not a correct interpretation that you and I can recognize If that's your thinking, please hear me when when I say uh, there are zero, zero differences on any key doctrines among anyone who believes the Bible is taken literally in a historical context. Zero. Zero. All the differences in people who believe the Bible is the Word of God, who take it literally in its historical context, all those differences are minor differences on secondary points and what individual verses teach. Listen, you will be without excuse someday when you stand before God if you don't do what you know you should do and in the back of your mind say, well, a lot of interpretations out there You know, some of the best advice I could ever give you when it comes to the Bible is simply this. Look for what God meant, not what it means to you. I remember as a new Christian here, well, this is what the Bible means to me, and that really impressed me because I was ignorant. I didn't realize at the time that that's actually a prideful thought. To be looking for what the Bible means to me. Listen, I would say to you this. Uh, The Bible is from God. Look for what God intended when He wrote it, not for what it means to you. And then be humble enough to receive whatever God intended, whether it means that to you or not. Listen, there's no disagreement about the character of our Creator, the deity of Christ, the triune nature of our God. There's no disagreement that salvation is only by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. There's no disagreement that our Creator's desire for His children is to live a faithful, holy, and separated life while loving others around us. God's goal for us is not to live our best life now. We live our life for Christ now. That will always be fine now. And God's best life is always tomorrow. So, Brother Wally, why do you take the Bible like that? That's the way Jesus used the Bible. It's the way Paul used the Bible. That's the way Peter used the Bible. And I want to tell you what, that's good enough for me. See, the problem isn't really generally the clarity of the Bible, though there are some difficult places. The problem is our lack of effort. The problem is we don't want to face what it actually says. So how do you know that, Brother Wally? So few people ever come up and ask me. But it isn't just about the Bible itself. We get insight into the mind and will of our Savior from what He said to His disciples. Go lastly to your Bible in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm trying to decide how much time I have. My clock up here says 12. That one says five till. My watch says two minutes till, so I'll just pretend I have five minutes. You say that's the kind of attitude makes me not want to come back. Now listen, if you know me well, I will give you lots of reasons to not listen to me. <laughs> I, I, I've told you this many, many times. I'm not here because I'm better than you. I, I, I'm... I'm here because God saved me as a sinner and called and gifted me to do what I'm doing today. It is one sinner preaching to a bunch of sinners about the wonderful Savior and book that He left us. Lastly this morning, number three, we get encouraged about our future when we think of all Jesus did in His resurrection body. Notice what Philippians chapter 3 says in verse 20. He says, for our conversation is in heaven... From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is, and you ought to highlight this in your Bible, because this is a key doctrinal statement. He says, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. The same power that will subdue everything to our Creator one day is the same power that will change our body and make it like Christ's resurrection body. You know, some people have inadvertently made heaven less appealing by the way they describe what goes on. The kingdom of God and our eternal home in the heavens will include praising God, but that's not just what we do. The kingdom of God and our eternal home does include rest for our souls, but it is more than just a spirit floating around in the clouds without a care. We just read that how when Christ returns, He will change our vile body and make it like unto the glorious resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we got a glimpse of that in our story. Now we could spend literally message after message talking about what God has in store someday for those who have believed and for those who have loved the Lord and served Him all His days. I'm not going to spend any time doing that, but I'm just here to say this, this morning, God's future is more than just eternal life with our Creator and the saints who've gone before us, so that will be wonderful. It will be more than rest for our souls, praising God and no longer hindered by our spiritual adversary. It is not just a mansion in a gigantic golden city of God whose gates are pearl, whose walls are jasper, and the street of which is gold. It is more than just a place where there is no more death, No more violence, no more suffering, no more abuse, no more cancer, no more hatred, none of that stuff at all. It will be wonderful. But you know, in our resurrection bodies, uh, we will travel all kinds of places just like Jesus did, like that. Say, where are you going? Well, someplace warm this time of year. I like the water. Now, you might think that's silly, but, you know, I'm happy just splashing in a puddle. And it's even better when it's like a lake or an ocean. And my background screen on my computer is all water scenes, and I I look at them all the time, and she might not want to go, but I always think, man, my wife and I someday will get to see that. Now, since you're not really married in the same way, she might ditch me. But I always do, I look at that and I think, man, we'll get to see that. We'll eat and drink. One might only imagine the kinds of things that will be on the heavenly menu and the kind of joy that we will have in preparing them and in eating them. Hear me when I say there is nothing in this short life worth missing the things that God has in store for those who love Him. And those who love Him according to Jesus keep His commandments. There is nothing in this short life worth failing to fulfill the plan and purpose of our Creator. Nothing. I know. Our world is a wicked place. God chose us for today. I know. It's not easy sometimes being a follower of Jesus when our own families, our own friends our own work acquaintances and people in the circle of life think us to be weird. And in their ignorance, they accuse people from a church like this of being in a cult when in fact all churches in America 70 and 80 years ago were like this and more committed than we are. And I just ask you this morning, are you properly valuing God's future? Because those who by faith today invest themselves in God's tomorrow will be glad they did so. I hath not seen, nor ear heard the things that God hath in store for them that love Him, but God hath revealed them to us by His Spirit. Rejoice in Him, amen? You'd quietly stand.